Alright, I want to welcome everybody here this morning to Grace Community Church. And we as a local church are continuing our study of the letter to the Colossians. And this morning we have made our way to the middle of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And, and as usual, we have some extra handouts going towards the back. So if you don't have one, just throw up a hand. While those are going back, let me say a quick uh, word, a housekeeping word. Uh, I might remind you of this over the next several weeks. Um, I'd like to see us maybe do something a little bit different. But if you notice that that the, the, the majority of the crowd of Grace Community Church tends to gravitate backwards instead of forwards. And uh, we understand uh, several different reasons for that. But I do want to ask you this. If you are here early enough... Uh, if you would slide to the front and allow people that slip in later to be in the back, uh, gives them a place to sit, gives new, uh, new visitors uh, a place to come in and sit, and also gives parents that have small children in the gathering, like the places in the back where they can move around some. So, just a word of housekeeping, I, that's, that's not a stern rebuke by any means, but I'm just, I'm, I'm welcoming you. There's lots of seats up here almost everywhere. Alright, Colossians chapter 2. We want to hear from God today, and so we want to pray together. Let's do that as a local church. Colossians chapter 2. Father, we come to you this morning, and it is our privilege, Lord, to, to confess our weakness before you and our need of you, God. Lord, we believe your word that blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's what we desire to confess to you, God, that... That we don't have an ability in our own minds and in our own strengths to, to know your ways and to walk in your righteous paths in this world. And so all across this room, Lord, we as, as grown men and grown women, we want to become little children in your presence. Little helpless children, Lord. And we want to, we want to plead, God, that you would be gracious to us. That you would... Keep your promise, God, that you would be gracious to the humble. Lord, we don't want to be the prideful that you resist, Lord. Be gracious to us, God. We want to come to you like little children now. And we want to be taught how to live in this world. And specifically, Lord, we ask you to warn us today. God, make us aware of real spiritual dangers that are around us. God, help us to feel that in such a way that we can't, we can't produce in our own strength. An urgency. A spiritual urgency. A spiritual sincerity and a spiritual soberness that's wide awake to distractions. Lord, wake us up today all across this room and use your word, God, to plant a warning in our souls. This is our prayer today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin today like we begin every week at Grace Community Church. We're going to read our text together. Okay? The most important thing you're going to hear in the next hour are the verses that we're about to read right now. So if you have the ESV, I want you to read it with me as I begin in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16. And we're going to stop at verse 19. This is the Word of God. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. This is where we're going this morning as a local church. And we want to feel this not as a warning from history, but a real warning for us in our, in our modern lives. Okay? So let me say a few things before we get to these specific warnings that we see in verse 16 and in verse 18. And the first thing I want to start with is I want you to look around for a moment. Okay? Not literally, you know, you can do it in your mind or however you want to do it. But I want you to think about the people that are around you um, here this morning. There are many, and I would even venture to say the vast majority of people that have gathered together in this room today love and worship Jesus Christ. They're, that means they're Christians. They have bowed the knee to Christ the King. Okay? I want you to think for a moment how, about how that happens. Because I'll also come and I'll remind you that even though that's true, for the majority in this room, it's true of no one in this room that they were always a Christian. Nobody in this room was born a Christian. Nobody came in by nature. We become Christians by grace, by the grace of God. This is how the Word of God defines our salvation. Okay? We have been, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we have been saved by grace. There is no Christian in this room that snuck around that. Everyone in this room that's a Christian went through that door. We have been saved by grace. And so I want to give you some reminders of what does that mean. Okay, That's the doorway into the Christian life. And what does that mean? Saved by grace grace. That means that every Christian is taken through a process to where you could say that they're brought to the end of themselves. Okay? To say someone has been saved by grace is to automatically say that that person is not saved by, finish the sentence, works, works. So someone who has received salvation by grace has turned their back on merit religion, works, salvation. It is someone who has recognized their desperate sinfulness before God, that God only owes them wrath and fury, and they can't do anything to work themselves out of this situation. And so they, in humility, they turn their back on work salvation, they burn that stuff to the ground, and they bow the knee, and they reach out with the hand of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift of salvation by the grace of God. Listen to Romans chapter 11 verse 6. Reminder to us. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer 
be grace. So they're so diametrically opposed to each other that if they were to mix together, grace would cease to be grace. Grace is anti-merit, anti-human achievement by its very nature. So listen, every Christian in the room came through that door. Salvation by grace. And let's think about why. Okay? Two, two reasons. First is this. Salvation by grace is God's chosen means of saving sinners. And the first reason is this. Because it eliminates all grounds of human boasting. It obliterates it. To say that someone has been saved by grace cuts their legs out from boasting in themselves forever. They didn't do anything to achieve it, anything to merit it, nothing. Okay? So that's one design of salvation by grace to God is to humble man and to forever lock away boasting in human merit and human achievement. But then the other side, the double-edged sword of salvation by the grace of God, it is that by its very design, the only person who gets glory for the salvation of sinners is the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. He shares His saving glory with no one. No one helped Him. No one tipped it over the line. No one assisted Him. He alone is God the Savior. This is salvation by grace. This is how we enter into the Christian life. By grace. By grace. Once that happens, the battle isn't, isn't over. Because then, once you enter into the Christian life, you're in this day by day and even moment by moment. You're in a battle to remember that even today, as a Christian, even in this moment, you're in a battle to remember that you still relate to God only by grace and never by works of merit. You're in, every Christian in the room is a battle to remember that. We have a sneaky, sinful part of us that is constantly pulling us into trying to relate to God, even as Christians, on the basis of merit and not on the sole basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a battle. Okay? Romans chapter 5, so not only Ephesians 2, we, we are saved by grace, but Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says every Christian in the room is standing in grace. That's where you're at right now. You don't have a leg to stand on on your achievements, on your merits. The only place firm that you can stand is in the grace of God. This is just as true for you in the Christian life. As it was the moment you were converted. You were in desperate need of the grace of God. Now, let me turn the corner. I'm going to connect a few things. We need to remember that we only relate to God by grace. But here's the problem. Every person in the room has a remaining part of you, even believers... That, that the Scripture calls the flesh, or we could call that the sinful nature. Okay, Can I get an amen for, the, for that this morning? Every person in the room still has this force 
this power that's at work in you that the Scripture calls the sinful nature. Okay? Sin is clinging closely to you. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to maul you. It wants to pounce on you. Okay? This Scripture calls this the old man, the sinful nature. Now something very specific that you need to learn about sinful nature, about the old man or the old woman, is that the old man... The old woman hates the grace of God. Sinful nature hates the whole concept of grace. It cannot stand it. It is anti-grace. It is only works, only merit, and it hates God's grace. You, you think about that. Okay? There is a part of you that wants to relate to God on the basis of merit. There is a part of you that wants to achieve something. There's a part of you that wants to hear, good job. There's a part of you that wants to work for it and get credit for it. There's a part of you that wants to rob glory from the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a part of you that hates grace. Why? Because grace is a reminder for every person in the room that you're not good enough. Your best isn't good enough before God. All of us fall short from that righteous, holy standard. And we are reduced to children, helpless children, in the presence of God, in desperate need for grace. And so you need to know that about yourself. Your sinful nature hates the grace of God. It hates clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it hates being reminded that you are not good enough. And not only that, it hates being robbed of its opportunity to boast in itself, to achieve and to boast in itself. It hates the gospel. It hates the grace of God. I want us to fight to remember this is at work in all of us. This sinful nature that gravitates away from the gospel is at work in every single Christian in the room. Your flesh prefers a version of the Christian life that you can attain with your own strength. Because it's, de it's desiring to achieve things. It wants to be told, good job. It doesn't want the supernatural Christian life of the New Testament. The one that's in desperate need of the grace of God. It does, it does not want to lean on Christ because it wants to boast in itself. This is the sinful nature. It's at work in every single Christian. So here's the battle. Christians in the room, you stand in the grace of God. You're standing in grace. You're in a battle to remember this stuff. A battle to apply the gospel in daily life. And then there's that old man that sneaks up in you. That's constantly trying to rip your eyes and your attention and your affection off of the finished work of Jesus. And so then you have all these strategies. All these spiritual attacks. That are designed to turn your face away from Jesus Christ. So that's the mindset that I want us to study these strategies this morning. That there are specific design schemes in your life that are meant to turn your face away from Jesus. Take that one step further. There's a part of you, a sinful nature inside of you that wants to believe that stuff. That wants to walk in that stuff. That wants to boast in the flesh. Instead of boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is our reminder. 
as we close this introduction and get into our text, there is not a Christian in the room that is immune from falling into and being distracted by false teaching. I think we can all amen that. Okay? If you feel immune to that, that you can never fall into false ideas, that you can never fall into spiritual distraction, I think we can all look at you and say, you're deceived. Brother or sister, sir or ma'am, you are deceived. The Scripture says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So that's the mindset that we want to we learn about these warnings this morning. This is not a danger for them over there. This is a danger for us. I want to watch out for my own soul. I want to watch out for things in my life that are meant to distract me away from Jesus Christ. If you have been learning and listening through the letter uh, to the Colossians with us as a local church, if you've been doing that, then surely you would want to know this letter really well. If you've spent several months of your life listening to expository teaching verse by verse through this letter, then surely when you get done, surely a good sign that you have been leaned in and instructed by God, being taught by God from His Word, is surely at the close of that time that you could turn and you could instruct someone else about what this book is about. What the, what the main message of this book is about. What the warnings of this book is about. And so I know, I know you. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ all over this room. I know you want to know that stuff. Okay? This paragraph is the most specific, vivid language. It's the most specific of anywhere in the whole letter of exactly what these false teachers are saying. Okay? And it also, that, that vivid description also bleeds into uh, uh, verse 20 and through verse 23. And so these two paragraphs, you're getting, you're getting the, the front row seat into this drama that's happening into this local church. And so we want to learn this stuff. We want to learn this stuff. So here we go. We want to we wake up. We want to be aware of these things that are meant to throw us off. Move us away from the grace of God. And here's the first one we're going to cover this morning. Enemy number one in your life this morning is what I'm calling the presence of spiritual superiority. The presence of spiritual superiority. I want to talk to you about that for a good while this morning. The presence of spiritual superiority. Superiority. You have two commandments in our text today. <clears throat> Verse 16, let no one judge you. Verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you. You have two commandments. Somebody's trying to do something to these Colossian Christians. Somebody's trying to judge them. Somebody's trying to disqualify them. Verse 16, Verse 18, this is mentioned twice. So here's what's happening. In this local church, you have this group, this small group, that is within this community that have taken a posture of spiritual superiority. They see themselves as above the other Christians in this community. 
spiritually superior. They're so superior that they have appointed themselves as judges in these other Christians' lives. Self-appointed judges in their life. And in fact, in verse 18, that word disqualify, that word is used in the ancient world to describe someone who, who was, a, was the rule keeper in ancient athletics games. It's like this person has become a self-appointed spiritual umpire in the life of this local church. Okay? Spiritual superiority, spiritual elite ones that sit in judgment over the peons, over the inferior, over the lowly ones. So what are they doing? We're going to talk more about this. But on the very surface, we know this, that they're putting tremendous pressure on these Christians to conform to their way of living. Okay? That's, that's the Colossian pressure. That's what he's warning them. Don't let them do this stuff. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Now I want you to spend some time thinking about what were they saying to these Christians? What were these spiritually elite ones saying to the Colossian Christians? They're trying to get them to follow their ways, their path, their way of living. But I don't think that they were saying this. <clears throat> I don't think that they were looking out at the church and they were saying, live like this or you're not saved. Or you're not a real Christian. I don't think that they were saying that. If they were saying that, then I think that the letter of Colossians would have a tone that sounds like the letter of Galatians, which Paul is blasting heretics for preaching a false gospel. He is pronouncing anathemas and curses from heaven on those who preach another gospel in Galatians. So I think what's happening here is something more subtle than if you don't live like this, you're not saved. Okay? Now, here's what I think is happening. You'll have to test it for yourself. I think what they're saying is this. Unless you live like this, you're not full. Unless you live like this, you're not full. Full. There's Christians. Yeah, you're a Christian. But you're not really a full Christian until you come down this path. We're going to look at several of those paths. So I think that they were introducing a hierarchy into the body of Christ. The initiated ones and the uninitiated ones. The really spiritual ones and just the merely saved ones. I think you can see this play out over and over again in church history. This is demonic strategy that distracts from Jesus Christ. It causes disciples of Jesus to not hold fast to the head. So they're looking at these Christians and I think they're saying, unless you live like this, you're not full. And of course, that fullness that they're talking about, they have somehow attained it. Full like me. Unless you live like me. Unless you think like me. So at the very core of what's happening here, I think that they're claiming spiritual superiority. Spiritual superiority. And I want to convince you that when anyone does that within the church, within the body of Christ, every single time someone does that, automatically two things are true. 
When someone claims spiritual superiority over another disciple of Jesus, they assault, every single time, they assault the person of Christ and they assault the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that in Colossians. When a person exalts himself in the body, he attempts to take the place that only belongs to the Lord Jesus. The only, only Jesus has supremacy in His church. The church has one head. And it's not you. It's not me either. It's Jesus Christ. And so, when you have these initiated ones, these super spiritual ones, they are encroaching on Jesus' domain. So I think that Paul, twice in this letter, he's responding directly to this spiritual superiority stuff when two different times in this letter, he tells us that only one person in all of history, in all the universe, can claim to have the fullness. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. They don't have the fullness Jesus does. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells in a body. And so I think he is shoving that right in their face, that whoever would stand in his place can't even stand beside him. He has the fullness. He has the fullness. So we exalt ourselves, we assault Christ. And not only that, when we exalt ourselves in the body of Christ, above our brothers, above other disciples, we assault the work of Christ. Think about this. If you believe that there's a hierarchy in the church, then, then you believe this. You believe Jesus did half His work on Paul and the other half of the work on Michael and somebody back here got the whole deal. They got the full deal. Half the work of Christ, half the work of Christ, the full work of Christ. And that's an assault on the finished work of Jesus. Ryan said this last week. Jesus, there's no Christian that's half justified, half adopted, half regenerated, half resurrected from the dead. There's no such thing as that. There's no such thing as this spiritual superiority. I think this is what he's getting at in Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 when he says this. He looks to this church, every single Christian in this church, and he says, You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. He wants to, he wants to safeguard these Christians against these, these ones who claim to have superiority over them by reminding them, you have it all in Jesus. They're not above you. They're not above you. This is laying a charge on the finished work of Christ. So I want to convince you this morning that this whole concept of spiritual superiority in relation to one disciple above, above another, it's not even a valid concept in the New Testament. It's, it's not even a valid concept. If you toy around with this stuff and open the door for some Christians are up here, other Christians are down here, then what you're doing, and you might not even realize it, is you're opening a door for exactly what we see happening in this church. Spiritual intimidation. Spiritual bullying. Spiritual superiority. Some disciples of Jesus that have their sins put away, that have all the fullness of, of, of the blessings in Christ feeling inferior to others who are walking around them. So if you open the door to this category, there's some nasty stuff that comes right through that 
cracked door. And so, we are commanded by this passage, no one, no one is to be a judge over you. No one is to be a self-appointed umpire in your life. No one. Don't let anyone do that. And my counsel to you is the safest way that you can keep that commandment is blow up this idea of spiritual hierarchy and spiritual superiority. Because here's the truth. If you really believe another person is superior to you, you will do exactly what that commandment said don't do. You will let them judge you. You will let them rule over you if you believe they're superior to you. So blow the whole category up. There's no such thing as a half Christian and a full Christian. Half-filled Christian and a full Christian. Listen to this. In, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said this. He's teaching us how to think about each other. Matthew chapter 23, verse 8, he says this. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And then listen. You have one teacher, and he says this. You are all brothers. You are all brothers. That just flatlined every one of us in the room. We have Christ, the head of the church, the teacher. And then every follower of Christ under Him. There's no hierarchy. There's no priesthood. There's no superiority. It's not even a valid category. Therefore, when someone exalts themselves above the brethren, that is smoke and mirrors. That stuff doesn't even exist. It's not even a valid category. And if you allow this to happen in a local church, you know what happens? Disciples of Jesus follow men instead of following Christ. I've seen this happen since our very, very first year that I became a Christian. Christians following men instead of Jesus. Why? Because they bit that bait. They really believe that stuff. That there's some really superior Christians and some peons like me. And I need to follow the superior ones. All of you are brothers. All of you are brothers. One teacher, all of you are brothers. You've got to blow this stuff up. This has been a disease in the church from the very beginning. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Following men. Men. And that's not even a false teachers. That's not even these Colossians wackos that they're following. We're talking about... Disciples of Jesus from the very beginning, following Paul, following Apollos, following Cephas. You think about that. I'll give you a warning as a member of Grace Community Church. This is directly applicable to how you view your spiritual leaders. Brothers, not above you, not in superiority. Brothers, Put pants on just like you do. Sin nature just like you do. Pray to the same God that you do. Desperate before the Lord Jesus. Needing the same amount of grace that you do. Brothers. All of you are brothers. You see that? Flatlined. So you think about this. If you were to somehow get lucky enough to score one of these as your next pastor. Here we go. Paul. Apollos. Or Cephas. I think Ryan would amen me on this. You would get an upgrade. An upgrade. Okay? So this is not just a warning if you have 
bad leadership in your life, this is a warning for you no matter where you're at on planet earth. That you have to stop this stuff of exalting men. You have to. This is even a danger for you if the Apostle Paul became your senior pastor at this church. Don't follow him. Don't exalt him above you. You have the same standing in, in the faith as the Apostle Peter himself. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm pleading with you this morning. You have to be convinced on that. That that's an invalid category. And once you're convinced on that, you have to turn the corner and take the match. And you have to burn that stuff to the ground. Because there's all kind of sinful nonsense that comes through that trap door of some are full, some are not full. Some are half Christians, really pleasing to God, and others are not as pleasing to God. Spiritual superiority. Spiritual superiority. We are commanded in this text to not allow anyone to take the place of Jesus Christ in our life. No one is to judge you. No one is to disqualify you. No one. No one. You think about this. We're going we're gonna to look at some very specific warnings. If you let somebody spiritually bully you that knows more of the Bible than you do, you don't have a chance to stand before these imposters that we're going to read about. If you let somebody bully you around spiritually, talk over you like an inferior, inferior because they have more spiritual experiences and spiritual language than you, you're not going to stand before these imposters that we're about to read about. If you let people bully you around and talk over you because they're more disciplined than you, more hardcore than you in asceticism, in, in disciplines of the Christian life, you're not going to stand before these imposters that we're reading about. Okay? You cannot allow anybody to take Jesus' place in your life, no matter how godly they are. And I want to wake us up. Spiritual bullying, spiritual intimidation is a real and rampant thing. Always has been. Spiritual bullies grab a hobby horse, something that, that they're drawn into, something that they believe they understand that nobody else does, some preference, some hobby horse, and they beat everybody else right over the head. With them. Spiritual bullying, spiritual intimidation. The examples of this that we're going to see in this passage are very severe, but there's less severe, more subtle versions in our day-to-day -day walk. Be careful of allowing spiritual bullies to intimidate you. I'll give you an example. We're at a wedding yesterday, and there was a sister at this church. This is spiritual bullying. Okay? Sister at this church was approached by someone in her past. Hasn't seen her in years. Knows nothing about her walk with God, her prayer life, the state of her soul. She says, hey, so-and-so, I see you've got a couple kids since the last time I saw you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Very next question, after the pleasantries of biographical information, you know what it was? Hey, do you vaccinate those children? Hey, do you vaccinate those children? Like a curveball out of nowhere. They have been initiated into the secret knowledge of if you're really a spiritual parent that really loves your children, there's no way you would do this stuff, so I'm going to beat you over the head with it. I'm not going to talk to you about Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk to you about vaccinations. Okay? That's a subtle version of spiritual bullying. There's, 
We need to be on the lookout for this stuff, not just the being done to us, but us doing this to other people. I'll give you some things to think about. If you have ever been guilty of making another believer feel inferior because of their choices of the types of medicine that they take or don't take or the type of essential oils that they use or don't use. You may have, and listen, you may have been guilty of spiritual bullying. Spiritual bullying. Listen, do what you want to do in your own conscience, in your own room by yourself. But you need to be very careful of hanging that stuff like a yoke over the necks of other disciples of Jesus. I'll give you another one to think about. If you've ever been guilty of making another Christian feel inferior because they didn't come to you for counsel about a certain decision, you may have been guilty of spiritual intimidation and subtle ways that you may have been guilty of exalting yourself above the brethren. This stuff is wicked and we've got to fight it. Wicked and we've got to fight it. So we're going to see some very specific tactics that these elite ones unleashed on the Colossian church. And really, we're going, to, we're going to study two together this morning. Legalism and mysticism. We're going to talk more about what each of those are. But that, this is, that they're exalting themselves above the brethren. And, and here's how, how, how they're doing it. And they're doing it through legalism. And they're doing it through... Mysticism. Let's, let's take the legalism first in verse 16. These elitists are, are, are attempting to bring judgments on the inferior ones. Listen. In matters of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival. Or a new moon. Or a Sabbath. So you have disciples of Jesus. And the superior ones are saying. You know if you really... If you really want to walk with God, you need to get on this food and drink Sabbath festival train. This is how you really, really please God. This is how the, the initiated ones, those who are really spiritual, these are the things that they do. And what, he, what they're doing is they're using the Old Testament law, they're using the distortion of the Old Testament law as a means to exalt themselves above others in the body of Christ. You are commanded, don't put up with this stuff. Don't let anybody judge you in regards to this stuff. You're not even supposed to give an inch, a millimeter, to spiritual bullying. That's the whole problem. People don't stand up to people like this. People don't stand firm in their freedom in Jesus Christ and just let them mow them down. Talk, talk all over them all day long. So they claim to have this higher form of Christianity this pathway to spiritual fullness. And specifically, they're, they're using two things. Jewish food laws and Jewish calendar days. Jewish food laws and Jewish calendar days. They're looking at disciples who have been set free in Jesus Christ. Who, are, who have received the glorious new covenant of Jesus Christ. And they're reaching back to the book of Leviticus and they're imposing Levitical food laws on these new covenant disciples. And they're saying this, okay? if you really want to please God, you, you, you need to flip your Bibles up into Leviticus 11. Okay? 
Because that chapter is a whole chapter about God said you can eat these things and they're clean. And then God said you can't eat these things because they're unclean. So they're looking at a group of people and they say, see, chapter and verse right there. If you eat that, you're not pleasing to God. And so they're calling these Christians, they're demanding them to refrain from that stuff. And this is how you really walk with God. This is how you really please God. They're doing the same thing with drink. Almost certainly what's in view here is wine. That they're looking at these disciples that are set free in Jesus Christ. And they're saying if you're really spiritual, you won't drink that stuff. You won't drink that stuff. Maybe they're reading something like this. Same book, Leviticus. Listen to Leviticus chapter 10 verse 9. It says this. Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Same type mindset. If you're really spiritual, you'll obey that stuff. Well, well, you know, I thought that stuff was about the Levitical priesthood when they go and enter into the temple. Can you imagine somebody saying that? And can you imagine that false teacher saying, yeah, but we're all priests. Nobody needs to be drinking. We all live in the presence of God. They are, they, are, they are manipulating text of Scripture to hang yokes on disciples of Jesus. They're doing this with the food laws and they're also doing this with the Jewish calendar. Look at this. These are holy days. And they're demanding that these Christians keep all these holy days. And you got several words here. Look at this. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Festivals is a reference to the annual feast. You go to Leviticus 23. We're talking about Passover. Talking about tabernacles. Talking about the Feast of Weeks. Feast of Trumpets. These annual feasts. That the Jewish nation. They would make pilgrims to Jerusalem. And they would keep feast in remembrance of the Lord. These Colossians spiritual ones. They're saying you've got to keep that stuff. Annual feast days. Not only that. New moons. New moons, it's not as weird as it sounds. Okay? New moons is just the first of the month in the Jewish calendar. And the Old Testament commanded that sacrifices and offerings be made to the one true God on the first of every month as an inauguration of that month to the one true God. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 28. So you got yearly reminders of this Jewish calendar. you got monthly reminders of this Jewish calendar, and then look, you get the Sabbath at the end of that at the end of that verse, and this is the weekly Jewish holy day that God commanded Israel to keep the seventh day holy as a remembrance unto the Lord. You can read about this in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter twenty. So you understand it. There's some stuff. In the Old Testament that God said do. And they're saying you need to go read that book. Because you need to be doing this. You need to be doing this stuff. You don't need to be eating this food. Or drinking this drink. You need to be keeping these days. So this, this, is, this is making the Jewish diet and the Jewish calendar obligatory. It's, it's, it's making it like a yoke that hangs upon the neck of the disciple of Jesus. Now... Paul interprets that not just, just as a theological mistake, but an assault on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. That's not just an error 
That is distraction from Jesus. It, it causes people to not hold fast to the head. And then he gives us some very specific reasons of why it's not just an error, it's dangerous. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 17. He says this. It tells us that these things, listen close, are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so, you have a group of elite ones, and we already know what their fundamental error was. And what was it? They got the book in their hand, but they have left Christ behind. They have made the most fundamental error that you can make with the Old Testament. They missed the entire point of the Old Testament. Shadow that points to the substance. That entire book is about Jesus, and they're blind to Jesus. They're fixated on the tertiary and they're missing the forest for the trees. He's right there. Every page is testifying to Christ. And they're missing it. They're distracted. He uses this imagery. Shadow, and the word is literally a body. Okay? Shadow and body. So if I had a light right here, and I turn backwards, and I had the light behind my head, you would see somewhere over in that area, you would see a dim reflection of my body. It's not my body. It looks like my body. If somebody looks and sees that shadow, they know there's a body there, so they're looking for the body. That's what the Old Testament law is designed to do to, uh, in regards to Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be a, di a dim, faint representation of the Lord Jesus. But it is not the Lord Jesus. It, 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 it talks about these shadows being put in place. We're, we're pointing forward to things to come. And so you have, for centuries, you have these Old Testament Scriptures, these Old Testament dietary laws, these Old Testament feast days, and they're, and they're painting a dim picture of the fulfillment of all this. And Paul says, the substance, the body, is Christ. So their error is they are looking at the shadow and the substance is available to every single one of them. Focused on the shadow and they have missed the substance. This is the worst mistake that you can make with the entire Bible. Bar none. You can know it like a telephone book. You can memorize more verses than, than, than a laptop computer. And if you don't know that this book is meant to lead you into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it profits you nothing. Nothing. It's the worst error that you can make with the Scriptures is to miss Jesus. And that's what they're doing. They're staring at the shadow. That shadow is the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant was put in place for just a little bit of time and it was preparatory. It wasn't permanent. Once it fulfilled its purpose, it was declared obsolete, never to be used again. Never to be used again. The only use that it has for us is to instruct us in regards to how Jesus fulfilled this stuff on our behalf. Never to be used again. An entirely new covenant has arrived. An entirely new error has arrived because Christ the substance 
has arrived. The shadow is put away. The shadow is put away. Now, why would someone ever do that? Why would someone ever choose the shadow over the substance? Okay? That's a silly thing. But it's more deceitful than that. It's more subtle than that. Why would someone do that? We've got to rewind to our introduction. Listen. Your flesh, your sinful nature loves this stuff. It loves this stuff. You understand that? Give me some rules to keep. Give me some external things to do. Don't make that flesh die. Don't reduce me to helplessness before the presence of God. Give me some religious hoops to jump through. Your flesh wants a version of the Christian life that doesn't even require the Spirit of God. You can knock off dietary rules and you can knock off feast days in the strength of the flesh. And your flesh loves that. It wants to achieve that. It wants to boast in that stuff. And even if this is not the way that you are tempted specifically, that same principle holds true. Your flesh wants some external rules to keep. That's the anti-gospel principle that is at work in all of us. In all of us. So we, it sounds like the stupidest thing you've ever heard of. Shadow over substance. But we will run to that stuff in a millisecond. Shadow over substance. New Testament is really clear as far as food laws and feast days that Jesus has fulfilled all of it. All of it. Listen to this. The substance that is Christ has arrived. That means that all these food laws that click on throughout the centuries, they're done. And Jesus told us this explicitly. In Mark chapter 7, it says this, He declared all foods to be clean. Therefore, anyone who follows Him is to believe what He taught. That, that's what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. All foods are now clean. This was confirmed in the book of Acts chapter 10. The apostle Peter has a vision about unclean and clean animals. The Lord tells him to rise and eat. He, 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 he kicks back from that commandment for a moment. But God shows this man. Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. New Testament is really clear. Okay, That's a shadow and that's been put away. Why? Because all the focus now is to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, the substance. Listen to what Jesus says about food and drink in John chapter 6 verse 55. He says this, For my flesh is true food. And my blood is too true drink. You want some dietary laws? Feast on Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. No more focusing on the shadows. We're tunnel vision focused in on the substance. No more of that stuff. It's preparatory and it's been put away. Same thing is true with the Jewish calendar and these feast days, these holy days. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, done, put away, no more. We don't keep the Passover like Jews kept the Passover. Christianity fulfills Judaism, not the other way around. We don't go backwards, they come forwards. Christ, our Passover lamb, has 
been sacrificed. We're not talking about the shadow anymore. Our eyes are on the substance, the reality. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No more shadows. As that Lamb of God has died in our place for our sins, you know what happens? Jesus opened up for us a true and better Sabbath. Shadow is done away with. Something true and better has been opened up for you. The reality, the true rest of God that any one of you can enter into by believing in the gospel. Ceasing from your works and resting in Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 4. The shadows have been put away. They're done. They have served their purpose And all the focus now is on the Lord Jesus Christ and all His glory. You know, really the only one that you get kickback on on that list is the Sabbath. For some reason, you know, we have this weird thing that you have this list there. Got no problem with that. Put away. No problem with that. Put away. No problem with that. Shadow done with. But whoop! Grab that one. One thing out of everything else on that list and you say, nope, still demanding, still binding on the Christian. That's wrong. If the Sabbath, if if what we're doing right now is a Christian Sabbath, if we are keeping a Christian Sabbath, and that's the law of God, then this verse makes no sense. We ought to impose that on every disciple of Jesus if that's the commandment. But we got no business doing this stuff because the Sabbath is a shadow. This stuff has been put away. The true and better rest is the rest that Jesus Christ gives us when we cease from our works and trust in Him. Rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. You see this even in our culture still. uh, The cults and some sects of Christianity, they take the Mosaic Law and they keep part of it. They can never keep all of it. That's the other thing they don't tell you. So they keep part of it and they beat it over the head. Uh, they beat that pet peeve over the head of disciples to make them feel inferior. Inferior. This is still happening in our day. Oh, you don't do this? Oh, you don't do this? You need to read Leviticus. Oh, you don't do this? You're not, you're not in, 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 in right in, in, full play, in God's full pleasure. You're not fully pleasing in God's sight. This stuff is silly. okay? Because it takes the focus off the work of Jesus. The once for all, finished, final work of Christ in our lives. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how silly this idea is of shadow over substance. And then I want you to think about how offensive it is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll give you an example here. I want you to imagine that you were an old newly married World War II generation couple. Okay? And I want you to imagine that three months after your wedding that your husband gets shipped to Europe and he's there for several years. You don't see him. Every once in a while you get a letter from the front lines. Your husband's fighting a war. And the only thing that you have as a reminder of your precious, beloved, husband is this little photograph. You got your your poor family, you got this one little photograph. I want you to think about how precious that would be to you. That you can 
in a moment when you miss Him, when your thoughts are, are cast on Him, that that photograph can remind you of that person. Okay? In that sense, it's a shadow. It's not Him, but it's, it's pointing to Him. It's making you think of Him. And we praise God for shadows like that. That's a good thing. Now comes the insanity. Several years later, that husband comes home from that war on the European front. And he walks in the front door. And the husband, your beloved, has arrived. I want you to think about how silly it would be for that wife to shun the personal presence of her beloved. And to run in the room and start staring at that photograph. To prefer the photograph over the person. That's silly. That's silly. And then turn the corner. How do you think Jesus feels about this stuff? That man walks in the front door of the house. He's ready to see his bride. She's told him that she misses him. And, she, and, and he wants her attention. And then all of a sudden, all the attention is on the shadow. It's offensive. It's offensive to Jesus when the attention is given to the shadow instead of the substance. And so you need to be warned that you can be distracted away from Christ in the Bible, in the Scriptures. Distract, distracted from Christ in the Scriptures. This is legalism. Alright, second strategy. These elitists are unleashing not only legalism, which is a distortion of the law of God, the Word of God, the, 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 the written Word of God, the Scriptures. They're also unleashing mysticism, which can care less about the Word of God. So you have this blending of heresies, and this stuff is coming at them from different directions. You need to be aware of both of those types of things. You need to be aware of errors and people tripping you up with the Bible. And you need to be aware of people tripping you up that can care less about the Bible. Legalism and mysticism. And you see mysticism in verse 18. Let's read it. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions. I want you to understand this. And this gets a little dicey. So just try to pay attention. Try to understand what you can and what's clear to you. First thing is this word asceticism. And all that is, is the same Greek word for the word humility. That's it. Okay? So the first thing that our minds are drawn into in regards to the mystics is the word humility. Now, in the Roman world, that was considered universally a vice, something to be shunned. But in the New Testament, everywhere, except for Colossians chapter 2, humility is a virtue. Okay? But it's obviously not a virtue in this context. So many people are in agreement here that what's going on in this passage is a pseudo-humility. A fake, pretentious humility. A fake humility. So I want you to get that in your mind. What would that look like? What would it look like for someone to stand in front of you and pretend to be humble? And I, and, I, and I think that's a real warning for us. Not only that we wouldn't do that stuff, that we wouldn't pretend to be humble, but also that we wouldn't let other people parade that stuff in front of us. 
Someone is not godly just because they say humble things and have some humble mannerisms. Okay? There can be deceit to this stuff and we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of it because the spiritually elite ones, the way they want influence in your life is they want you to look at them and think, oh, how godly is that man? Oh, how godly is that woman? They're so humble. They're so humble. And so instead of not thinking about themselves, they're thinking about themselves all the time of how can I say this so they'll think I'm humble? How can I say it this way so they'll think I'm humble? It's a fake humility. A fake humility. Now, next one is a little harder. It's the word worship of angels. And I'll say a couple of things here. In the Greek text, those go together. Humility and the worship of angels. I'll come back to how in just a minute. But let's deal with that phrase. The worship of angels. What does this mean? Are they really doing this stuff? Are they coming in the church and saying, We praise you, Gabriel. Is that what they're doing? Is it that explicit? The worship of angels. It can certainly mean that. It can certainly mean the full throttle praise of angelic beings. Okay? But it can also mean this. It can also mean the worship that the angels give. And we could say this. The worship of Grace Community Church. Somebody could take that to mean, oh, somebody's worshiping Grace Community Church. Or they could take that to mean, that's how Grace Community Church worships. The worship of Grace Community Church. And so you can take this this way. That what this is really talking about is what some have called the angelic worship of God. This is not about worshiping angels. This is about the angels worshiping God. And this mystic wanting to be caught up in this angelic worship of God through some mystical experience. It could be that. Could be either one of those things. I'll tell you what I think it is, and you'll have to search it out for yourself. Okay? And I think the key is that the humility and the angel worship they go together. So here's what I think's happening. I think that this person is pretending to be so humble that they would never dream of going directly to God without angelic. Mediation. They're so sinful. God is so holy that only the angels can mediate between me and God. It's a fake humility. It's a distortion of the gospel. And no matter what it is, okay, we know that their mind is captivated by spirit beings, by angels. That's what they're thinking about all the time. And so I think this is what's happening. That they, they feel like that they need... And that the real path of spiritual superiority is angelic mediation. So all, all, they're doing all kinds of silly stuff. Like praying to angels. Invoking the help of angels. Some of this still happens today. Still happens today. On paper, if you were to ask people like this, are you worshiping angels? They would say, no, 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 no. We only worship God. But in effect, the angels are given more attention than God Himself. They are in effect... Worshipping angels. In effect, they're worshipping angels. And they're convinced that they have seen spiritual visions. The text says they love to talk about this stuff. Here's what I saw. Here's what the Lord showed me. Here's what I saw in my, in my prayer closet when I was going to the, to the grocery store today. The Lord showed me this. The Lord said that. The Lord said this. The Lord said that. Love to go on and on about this stuff. That's a mystic. That is a mystic. 
They're not talking about chapter, verse, it is written. They're talking about this whisper that they hear all the time in their ear. That is mystic Christianity. It is a distortion of the Christian life. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Angel worship. They're not trying to worship angels, but in effect, they're worshiping angels. Now, I think that this still happens today in the Roman Catholic Church and the attention that they give to dead Christians. You say, hey, do you worship the saints? Do you worship Mary? And they say, no, we don't worship Mary. And then you look at their life and everything that they talk about is Mary and dead saints this and dead saints that. Praying to this dead saint. This dead saint has a feast day and a festival. That is false worship. That is worship that is only meant to be terminated on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, y'all need to pray for our Peru team because they're going into a land where it is swimming with this stuff. The worship of Mary, the worship of, of, of this saint, or the praying to Mary in that saint. This is a false gospel and a distraction from Jesus Christ. Not only that, I think another, another guilty party with the same thing is the modern-day charismatic church. Listen to me. There is not a more specific, I mean rip in Scripture, to somebody who walks around talking about, the Lord showed me this vision, I heard this voice, Lord showed me this, Lord showed me that. This is exactly what they're doing, going on and on and on about what they've seen. Infatuated with spirit beings. Mysticism always has been a distraction from real Christianity, a distraction away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you think about this. That first error was jacking up the Bible, coming to wrong conclusions and missing Jesus. This error is throwing the Bible out the window, going in your prayer closet, and whatever feels right, whatever sounds right, must be true about Jesus. And the outcome is a false Christ. It is false worship. It's not just a mistake. Okay, When somebody does this, when they go uh, worshiping angels and insisting on visions, that's not just a mistake. That's a false system of worship. God hates that stuff. Listen, you have two options. Did that stuff come from God? And if it did not, it automatically makes it what? Demonic and satanic. It is a false system of worship. Listen to this. Ezekiel Chapter 13, verse 7. The Lord says, Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Do you know that there's a grid in place every time you say, the Lord told me? And the grid is this. Either He told you that or He didn't. And that makes it true or it makes it a false word spoken in the name of God. You say, well, I've never thought about it like that before. Well, take that warning. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. Listen to this in Jeremiah 23, verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed. I have dreamed. This has always been around. You know why? Because it's easier than walking with Jesus. Flesh loves this stuff. This is, this is like candy to, to the flesh. Why? 
Because it doesn't have to be in check at all. It's a, it's a free-for-all. That's the sin of sensuality in the New Testament. Anything that feels right, God's doing it. Anything that you think God said, God said it. This is a wicked thing. This is a wicked thing. If we were honest, we could lob errors all day long as some clear examples of this. But I want us to feel the weight of that. That there's a part of us that gravitates to this stuff. That gravitates to this stuff. We want mysticism to be true because we don't have to bow to Holy Scripture if we can do whatever feels right to us. Our flesh loves that. Loves that. So, who are these people? They claim to be the spiritual ones. The ones who are heightened in their sensitivity to the things of the Spirit. But look at verse 19. They're not full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 tells us they're puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. People like this are not more spiritual than you. They don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you. They are filled with pride and arrogance. They are puffed up by their own sensuous mind. They think they're seeing visions in the spirit realm, but all they're doing is seeing things from their own sensual mind. They're not in the heavenlies. Okay? They're in their own sensuous mind. And they pretend to be humble, but they're puffed up. They're filled with pride. Why? Why, why is a charismaniac mystic filled with pride? Because they won't bow to the book. They won't bow to the book. They won't submit to Holy Scripture. Their feelings are the standard, not it is written. They are filled with pride. These have always been distractions away from holding fast to the head. Imagine that. Spending your entire life, spending your entire life convincing other people in the body of Christ that you're superior to them and that they need to come down your road. And then all of a sudden at the end of your life for it to be true, you're not even connected to the head. You're not even planted in Jesus Christ. This is false spirituality. Jesus has nothing to do with this stuff. That's a sad reminder. That's a sad reality. And this is worth us being woken up about. Okay? This is what's at stake. Not just you make a little error. What's at stake is you not being connected to Jesus Christ. These are both distractions that accomplish the same thing. They accomplish you being pushed away, the focus being pushed away from Christ. They're Christless. So, let's summarize this. Legalism is a Christless approach to the Bible. And mysticism is a Bibleless approach to Christ. Doesn't matter which ditch you fall off on, it accomplishes the same goal. Not connected to the head. Not holding fast to the head. There's our warning. That's the rails. Don't go this way, don't go this way, and don't let these bullies do this stuff. Now I want to close with us spending some time about how how, how can we resist. In this battle, how can we resist spiritual intimidation and falling into these traps? I just want to mention a few things. I already said this uh, several times. I believe that the secret to not allowing somebody else to judge you, disqualify you, and bully you around okay, is that you never allow yourself to, 
to, to be, to, you never believe yourself to be inferior to that person. If you don't believe you're inferior to that person, then they can't sit over you like a judge and like a self-appointed umpire. That's where the battle is. You have to see yourself as standing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse 10. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. One more reminder in the same, in the same vein here. is our, our text begins with the word therefore. We didn't talk about it. That's the first word in verse 16. Therefore. And what that means is that a point has just been made in Colossians. Okay? If you were here last week, you know that that point was an exaltation of the finished work of Christ. Therefore, because of that stuff, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you in these ways. And so, here's the battle. That we have to remember... That what Ryan taught last week, what Colossians chapter 2 says is true of every Christian, is in fact true of us. So I want you to think of how safe you are in this spiritual battle. If it is always before your mind that you have this wicked nature in you, but Jesus dealt a death blow to that sinful nature. How? Circumcision of Christ. He took the knife in His hand. And He cut out the heart of flesh and put with put the heart of stone and put within us a heart of flesh that beats for the kingdom of God. That loves the Lord our God. He dealt the death blow when He did that. He ensured our final sanctification when He sealed us with His promised Holy Spirit. There, there it, it, it will never be true for you as a Christian that sin will have dominion over you. Why? Because you have a new heart. Those enemies have been put behind you. It's also true that Jesus took that record that stood against you earlier in Colossians 2 and He hammered it to the cross. False teachers can't use that stuff to manipulate you anymore. Your guilt and your feelings of inferiority. Why? That stuff is hammered in the body of Christ to the tree one time forever. Never to be paid for again. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ. How safe is somebody who's remembered, who's standing in that stuff? And then one more. The person who believes that the Lord Jesus Christ conquered, triumphed over their strong spiritual enemies. That He triumphed over these demonic, satanic powers for them in Christ. How safe is a person who is standing, anchored in the finished work of Jesus. That's the therefore. Because of that stuff, therefore, resist these distractions. Resist this stuff. Don't let anybody do this to you. You have it all. You have received the finished work of Christ. We talked about it in verse 18. We talked about these spiritual umpires that are... Self-appointed. They're making judgments in your heart. Don't do this, don't do this, disqualified, whatever. And they're, they're, they're all up in your brain. And, and, and you can't hardly think about praying or theological decisions or even interpreting the Bible without this person popping in your mind. They're a spiritual bully. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says this. Same Greek word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Not these tyrants. Not these bullies. But the finished work of Jesus reigning on the inner man. 
Only thing that you're focused on and saturated with is Jesus and His finished work on my behalf. That's safety. That's safety. That's a person who's standing firm in the freedom that has been given them in Jesus Christ. I'll close with just a short line. This is a short little phrase from, a, from, a, from an old pastor. He says this, If you have Him, you don't need them. I love that. If you have Him, you don't need them. You have everything you need in Jesus. You don't need their praise and you don't need to be fearful of their criticism. If you have Jesus, you don't need them. You don't need them. You are sufficient in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we do. We praise Your holy name for Your finished work. God, give us grace to believe Your glorious promises that You finished the work on our behalf. And Lord, I pray for this local church, God, that You would help us to guard something that we don't think about often enough. Help us to guard our freedom in Christ. Help us not to be drawn into subtle slavery. Lord, help us to stand firm in the freedom that You have given us. God, help us not to give an inch, not to give a moment, not to give one sliver of the freedom that You have given us back into slavery and being domineered by men. Lord, help us. Help us as a local church. God, set us free all across this room from bad mindsets. Anything from Your Word, God, that they needed to hear today, use it, Lord, to do Your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.